Om Sam Saraswati Namaha Namaste Namaste everyone I would love for us to begin by looking at the picture on the cover of our book or on our app and you know I found this lady and she was staring at me and I just stared back at her and I fell in love at first sight so I bought a stack of pictures. I bought every picture in the store and I took them with me as I roamed around India. I put a, this picture in, on the altar of every temple that I worshipped in. And I, I did the puja and then I read the chandi and I stayed a while and I meditated and I, and I roamed and I roamed and I roamed and one day Sri Ma walked into my life <laughs> and as providence would have it I followed her to the next temple and there was the same picture sitting on the altar. <laughs> and I followed her to the next temple, and we went from house to house and temple to temple, and wherever we went where she took me, there was the same picture. Because she took this same lady and put it on the altar of every temple where she did puja. Well, when we, when we got tired of visiting all of her friends and devotees, we went to the temples that I loved, and there was the same picture. And obviously, she became, by default, she became the cover of our translation of the Chandipat. So, I'd love for you to understand, Chand means to tear. And Chandi is the goddess who tears. Now, she tears everything up. It, whatever you don't want, she tears. But specifically, for sadhus, she tears apart the ego. She pairs, tears apart duality. She pair, tears apart the thoughts. Because the gods are the forces of unity and cohesion and they are the, the, the energies and the consciousness which brings us to the realization of perfect unity. And the asuras are the things that keep us away from that. Mostly they translate into nam and rup. Rup means form. Now every form that we can name has a name. And Nam and Rup means name and form and those come to us in the subtle body as thoughts. Wherever you see a form, you try to find the name that goes with it. Like that's a Parvati and that's a Kanta and that's a Ruth and that's a Pratibha. That's a light, and that's a, these are devotees. We, it comes to us as a form, and then we think about the name. And we know, cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am. Wherever there is a thought, there's a thinker. And that thinker is I. And I, the thinker, is a little bit different from I am one with Shiva. I am one with God. Shiva Aham, Aham Brahmashme. So the meaning of Chandi is the goddess, the energy which tears apart duality, she tears apart thought, she tears apart all the obstructions that, to the perfection of unity. And so, uh, Chandipat means the pot, the recitation, which invokes the goddess, she who tears apart whatever you don't want. <laughs> Negativities, thoughts, duality, assurance, any way you want to say it also known as the Durga Shapta Shakti. 
Durgam means confusion, difficulties, obstacles. Durga removes the Durgam. And Saptashati means 700. The 700, and they're not really verses. 700 oblations, mm. 700 ohutis, 700 times opportunities to place our duality into the unity and make one big illumination. So the Durga Shaktasati, the 700, we called it verses, but they're not really verses, they're 700 oblations. And I think I made it in the uh, uh, book called Pronunciation and the Chandi Shamputs. I went through, I believe there are uh, 84 Uwachas, there are 56 Namastasyas, uh, there are 112, if I remember correctly, uh, uh, half verses. And so it, these are all oblations. And altogether, they make up the 700 oblations in praise of she who removes all the difficulties or Durga Shaktasati. And it's also known as the Devi Mahatnyam. Mahat Nyam. It means the greatness. How great is this goddess? She's fabulous. She's a number 10. Why number 10? Well, because that's as good as it gets. Number 1. Oh, okay. So, on page 2, I, I was writing this and I was chanting this and I was carrying this book around India with me. Wherever I went and I met any kind of a sadhu, I would say, can you tell me about this book? Can you tell me about this verse? Can you tell me how do I apply this knowledge in my life? Why is this useful to me? What does it mean? How do I use it? How could I change my life? And I heard some whoppers. <laughs> and I heard a lot of nonsense. Every now and then, somebody said something of value, and I immediately took out my pen and paper and wrote it down. And nine out of the ten guys who saw me writing down what they were saying said, look how famous I am. People come from America to write down what I say. And then I sort of grabbed that up in a ball and put it in my pocket. <laughs> but every now and then I met a luminous being who was doing the sadhana and doing the tapasya and walking the walk and living the life. Because I realized very early on, for me, the spiritual practices were only important so far as they could inspire me and train me and discipline me to lead a spiritual life. I didn't want to just memorize practices. I wasn't trying to become a Brahmin. I wasn't trying to become a Pujari. I didn't want to become a priest. I wasn't looking for a new profession. I was looking for a new way of looking at life. So I studied Chandi through the lens, through the purview of how can I make a spiritual life incorporating these principles. Obviously, my guru, uh, it, my, it, it, my guru was an inspiration. He was a Chandi Upashak, and he used to sit down and sing the Chandi most of the day after he did something very similar to the Cosmic Puja, he would sit down and chant the Chandi. Well, this was a verse that came to me in English as I was studying the Chandi, and it was the goddess speaking to me. She said, I dance, and all that you perceive are its manifestations. Everything in the world is my dance. Every phenomena that you perceive is my dance. 
If you like, you can watch me dance. Or if you like, you can make me stop. So if you want to see me dance, go ahead and watch. You'll see that everything is the manifestation of the goddess in action. Or if you want to make her stop, everything stops. You see the stage of consciousness upon which the goddess dances. He who can make me stop, I make him a seer. He becomes a rishi. Ra plus ish, iti rishi. Ish means to perceive. Ra means again, he sees like Ishwar sees. He becomes a rishi. Just without limitation. I make him a being of wisdom. He becomes a Mahagyani. Remember Samadhi said, uh, uh, I, I've been worshipping you, goddess. And you're going to give me the boon? If you want to give me the boon of my choice, then give me the wisdom and the discrimination which will free me from attachment. <laughs> and let me be in love with life and in love with the world. Let me have pure devotion. Give me the wisdom that brings pure devotion. So I make him a, a, a rishi, a gani, one of intuitive vision, my husband, Lord Shiva, the consciousness of infinite goodness. If she blesses us, we become Shiva. Whoever can make her stop her dance and just see her without change, without modification, just see her. As she is, he becomes con pure consciousness. He becomes the consciousness of infinite goodness. He becomes Shiva. Shiva home. I, I just noticed today that we are dealing with a book that was first published in 1974. Which means to me, it must have been written somewhere between probably 1970 and 1973 while I was writing it. And I did Sahasra Chandi. Gosh, I did one in Bokrishwar. I did Sahasra Chandi in Rishikesh. I did one in Jageshwar across the Himalayas. And we did two in. Uh, one in Martinez and two in Napa. That's seven. That's seven times three years. That's 21 years with time off for good behavior. <laughs> that we did the Sahasra Chandis. And during those Sahasra Chandis, I refined and worked on and re-edited and re-evaluated and reformatted as we got new computers and new technology we upgraded the presentation of the chandi and this is the sixth edition well let's read the introduction oh, this is the introduction that was written in 1981 Every form in the universe is subject to evolution and devolution and the two intermediate positions, birth and death, the wheel of life. So we're going to evolve and devolve and <laughs> we're going to take birth and then we're going to go out of birth and sansar chakra gurtatake. The waves of the sea rise and fall, vegetation rises from the earth and returns to it, animals born to existence ultimately decompose and mingle with the dust of the earth. Even the sun sets at the close of, the, of every day. 
So you've got this wheel of life, and there's birth, and there's death, and there's a beginning, and a middle, and an end, and there's sunrise and sunset, and the vegetation comes out of the earth, and it goes back in the earth, and the animals come on the earth, and then they go out of the earth, and seeing this, and knowing fully well that every human being dies, even still, our minds wander in the attachments of the ego as though we are immortal. So Eudasthir was walking around the earth and he was trying to, to uh, find some water for uh, Draupadi to drink. And uh, he sent his brothers to a little spring and there was somebody sitting by the spring said, you can't drink the water until you answer my question. Well, Beam said, what do you mean? I don't have to answer your question. I'm the strongest man of the earth. I have the strength of 10 elephants. I'm not going to answer your question. He drank the water and passed out. Arjun went to drink to the water and he and the being said answer my question and then you can drink the water and Arjun said I am the greatest archer in the world and I am not going to answer your question I'll just shoot an arrow at you what are you who are you to tell me that I can't drink the water until I answer your question and he picked up a scoop full of water and he passed out Nakul and Sahadev went to the same spring of water and they said, I'm going to drink the water. And the being sitting by the water said, you can't drink that water until you answer my question. And Nakul and Sahadev said, we are the greatest swordsmen in the world. Why would we have to answer your question in order to drink the water? Water belongs to everybody. And they drank the water and they passed out. Eudasthir well, went to the spring and he saw all four of his brothers passed out on the bank of the spring. And he said, I'm going to pick up, I'm going to drink the water. And the being by the spring said, don't drink the water until you answer my question. See what happened to your brothers. They all tried to drink the water without answering my question. Eudasir said, what's your question? And the being by the spring said, what is the most amazing thing that you have ever seen? And Eudasir said, I've seen that man after man dies. And everybody who's living lives like they're never going to die. The most amazing thing. And of course, the being by the spring said, drink the water. <laughs> Even still, our minds wander in the attachments of the ego as though we were immortal. What is this delusion of ego, this ignorance of attachment that binds our every thought and action? What are these dreams and illusions to which we are so bound? We are adorn our bodies as though they were never subject to decay and cling, cling to relationships with people and things as though they are the substance of our very existence. We eat when we're not hungry, we kill when we don't need food, and we copulate out of season. We intoxicate ourselves to forgetfulness, take tobacco and drugs, even when we know it is injurious to our health, and we drive our cars as though our, there are no statistics of traffic fatalities. I mean, we live like there's no tomorrow. Death is never going to approach me. We are the invincibles. Or so we think. Our actions betray us. We see a new desire take birth with every perception, helplessly watch it grow until it, be, it becomes an obsession, regulating our every action. When we see something we want, all we can think about is what we want. How am I going to get it? Forget about the rest of the world. 
As one possessed, we see morality and convention, even common sense, yield to the ethics of convenience in which we can rationalize any behavior that brings success. Can't we? If, it, if, I, if I come closer to my goal, then it was good. The ends justify the means. Look at the reality of our lives and our goals and aspirations. There are many among us who have no vision of the future. We are caught in the paradox of working to survive and surviving to work. And somehow a sense of boredom, frustration, and futility has taken over our entire being. We find no lasting satisfaction, no sustaining pleasure, no all-inclusive delight. Again, when we find ourselves avidly pursuing some goal, we are constantly in strife. Our minds are harnessed to the thought without our control. A continual anxiety prevails in which the vision of success or failure recurs to us day and night. Well, every time we find the desire that we want to pursue, we can, can't stop thinking about it. No matter how we try and say, okay, well, I, I already rehearsed that tale. Uh, still, the thought comes to us again and again. Oh, look at these thoughts. How many of them bear significance in the cosmic reality? How many of them are such transient and petty desires that we ourselves can't remember them even after a few hours or a few days, let alone in the context of the history of civilizations or the evolution of humankind or the origin of the universe? Most of my thoughts are a lot more petty than that. <laughs> What delusion has possessed us and how do we go about purifying the ego so as to get rid of this bondage so we can maintain our divine perception as gods and goddesses in the garden of bliss? In the Durga Shaptashati, Mother shows us how to do just that. Give them all to her. The continual recitation of this book is designed to accomplish this. Every character mentioned in this book is within us. The forces that impel us to realize our own divinity, filling our lives with love and joy and a sense of meaningful purpose, as well as the forces that incline to diminish that perception. In the case of the enemies of the gods, that's the Asuras, anti-gods, enemies of the gods, which has be render, been rendered as thoughts, primarily the root-wise meanings of the words have been employed. So whatever the root was in Sanskrit, that's how we defined it in English, and we took that definition all the way throughout. So every time it's, that Asura's name came, we used the English equivalent. Ashura's in Vedic usage is an epithet of both the gods and the, their enemies, and the Ashuras alike. It means variously spiritual, incorporeal, divine, a good spirit, or an evil spirit, an opponent of the gods. In the Puranic literature, it is almost exclusively in the latter sense that the term is used. So just as the gods or devas are the forces of clear perception, deep means to shine, deva, de, de, the shining ones, the illuminated beings, the gods, the, 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 the portions of supreme divinity, which manifest as illuminated beings, well, they are the forces of clear perception. Their opponents must be those that obscure clear perception, self-centered, egotistical thoughts. In the case of the devas, the Vedic tradition has been applied almost exclusively 
So what's the Vedic tradition? I mean, Boruna is the Lord of Waters. The waters are always in equilibrium. There's always imbalance. No matter how you uh, hold it, they're always level. Level with me, will you, Varuna? Bayu is the wind. He's unchecked. He goes wherever he wants. Agni is the light of purification. He you use him to purify whatever you want to pure. And the sun, Surya, is the light of wisdom, and the moon is the light of devotion, and every, these are the Vedic usages of these terms. With the exception of the creative, maintaining, and dissolving capacities, which are the Puranic, Puranic conceptions of Brahma, Vishnu, and Siva. The symbolism of the weapons of war has been defined from a consensus of oral traditions combined with the available scriptural references in the tantras. So it is the qualities and characteristics of spiritual discipline symbolized in these words that are relevant, more so than the question of with which physical weapon did she strike. Hence, these words will take significance in the individual meditations of the seeker and their definitions will change with growth, development, progress along the path. For example, Krishna says to Arjuna, take the sword of wisdom and cut the doubts born of ignorance. Well, now we know that this sword stands for wisdom, the wisdom that cuts the doubt, uh, the wisdom that, that is a light to illuminate the darkness of doubt, the darkness of, of, uh, of not knowing what's going to happen, the darkness of ignorance. All of these implements of war, the net of unity, the bell of continuous tone, the bow of determination, the arrow of one-pointed focus, the trishul of, of unity of all the threes, uh, all these weapons in her hands are tools with which we are going to cut down our assurance. This principle is even more true of the goddess, the mother of the universe. In one sense, she resides in the image, the photo, or the idol of worship. In Stul Sarir, in the gross body, on the lower level. She is an idol. She is the symbol. She is the depiction of the perfect goddess. She's got she's a handy lady to have around. She's got lots of arms. She's got lots of feet. She dances like crazy. She's got 10 heads and 10 arms and 10 feet. And she can do everything and see everywhere. And, and, and still, she is Mother Nature dancing on the stage of consciousness. In another application, she is manifested in the physical body of the worshiper. She's inside. She's every vibration. I wear her outside as a cloak. I wear her inside all my chakras. I wear her. She is in my heart. She in the in the subtle body as the vibration of thought. She is in the bottle, body of the worshiper. And again, in the causal body, her feet cover the earth and her crown extends to the farthest reaches of the atmosphere. She, she covers the earth and her crown extends to the highest heights of heaven. On every level, the scripture is a commentary on the evolution of consciousness. How do I see her in the idol on the altar? How do I see her in my heart within me? How do I see her cosmic form with her feet covering the earth and her crown extending to the highest reaches of the atmosphere? The Durga Shaptashati or Chandipat is Puranic comprising 13 chapters of Markandeya Purana, numbers 81 to 93. It dates between 900 and 500 BC. Probably the older date is more appropriate. But we don't know. 
We can't. It, it is, it, it, it has evolved over time. Just like my translation started way before the date in the book. However, because the first writing in India was not widely used until the 3rd century B.C., that's 300 years before Christ, so from 900 to 300 B.C., it was only spoken. It was Sruti. It was memorized by disciples, and they went around chanting it. It is precarious to proclaim any accuracy as to the actual date. It most probably assumed its present form during the 4th century AD under the patronage of the Gupta kings when scholars collected, edited, and recorded the oral traditions of prose and poetry prevalent among the many peoples of the empire. So when the, the Maurya dynasty united all of India and kicked out the Greeks in 300 uh, 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 in 300 BC, uh, then it was written down and then it was distributed all over and when the Gupta kings came in the 4th century AD, they sent around people to all the different communities of India and they wrote everything down. All the different versions. And they brought them all back and uh, they edited them and made the master Chandi which has several versions. Certainly its root is Vedic. The entire Chandipat purports to be a commentary on the two Rig Vedic hymns included at the beginning of and the end, the Ratri Shukta, the praise of the night of duality, and the Devi Shukta, the praise of the goddess who is unity. We must dispel the darkness of egotism in order to realize that I am a divine being of infinite per perception. Chandipat is a fundamental authoritative text of the tantras. What do you do practically? Remember, mantra is intuitive experience, yantra is intellectual explanation, and tantra is practical application. What do you do? How do you do this thing? Yeah, Bhagavad Gita tells me, be a perfect devotee and do everything you do for God. But he doesn't tell me how. Chandi tells me how. Chandi says, okay, sit in one asana, inhale this mantra, exhale that mantra, put the flowers here, put the flowers there, and then with the sword of wisdom, cut down your ego and cut down all the limitations to the ego along with kam, krod, lo, mo, moda, matsajja, all the different limitations of the ego. It gives definition to method and practice of the oral tradition which that can only be learned from a qualified guru, the practice of which, when mastered, opens the doors to the secret and makes available all the magic of the tantra, a new way of perceiving ourselves and the world around us. Well, tantra is magical, and we're going to talk more about the magic of the tantras when we get to the kilika stab, and we're going to talk about opening the doors of the secret, putting on that suit of armor so you're well protected, or opening the deadbolt lock, and then taking down the, 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 the pin, the, the sickle, uh, that, uh, 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 the security latch, and then opening the doors to the secret so you can and walk right in, sit right down and perceive the magic of how do you look at life with divine eyes. This is an intellectual interpretation of the Chandi. I wrote it down. These are thoughts. These are my concepts, my explanations, my intellectual explanation. But to realize the real Chandi, we must strive to make the goddess the sum and substance of our life. That's the most important thing. 
This may be accomplished by sitting in an asana and pronouncing the mantras of this work and by striving to make the asana and the recitation longer and stronger and brighter and louder and more intense until you actually pay attention. And it becomes the sum and substance of our lives. It becomes important to us. Like you get up in the morning and all you can think about is, I gotta, I'm going to go do the puja. And you come back from the puja and you can say, I'm going to serve mother in the way she needs to be served so that I get the privilege to go and sing the chandipat. Do not worry about pronouncing the Sanskrit perfectly when you first begin your practice. Do not worry about anything. The only one who pronounces it perfectly is Shiva. And everyone else is a student. We are trying, our goal is to come as close as we possibly can, but we don't worry about it. In fact, don't worry about anything. If you study this, and other translations or commentaries or, and you devotedly recite, study the philosophy, study the history, learn the context and the culture and the, the environment in which it was revealed and explained and passed on and why they did it that way and study Chandi will become known to you. It's a realization. It's not an acquisition. The one who understands it completely is Lord Shiva. And to the extent we are capable, we become him. Thus, the Durga Saptashati is a practical training manual. It really is. As human beings, we have become habituated to being beset with thought. And there's very rare times that we can just turn it off. Most of the time we're thinking about something, like when is that Swami going to stop? Through the study and practice of this work according to the prescribed procedure, Om Guru Bhyamma, Om Pam Guru Bhyamma, Om Parapra Guru Bhyamma, we seek to free ourselves from this habit to take the ego eye out of thought to find the remedy of that all too chronic disease attachment and to expand our awareness beyond the relationships of this physical body so as to intuit by direct perception the bliss of the universe. That's the goal. That is the goal. That's the reason that we study this. That's the reason we practice this. That's the reason we're interested in this. So that we can intuit by direct perception the bliss of the universe. Saptasati is a way. Daily reciting the verses we offer to mother, <clears throat> mom, all our troubles, our afflictions, all manner of thoughts and perturbations, even the very ego itself, and one by one she cuts them down. She purifies them with the vibrations of her mantras until we too become the one of intuitive vision, samadhi. Sama samadhi. Of all. Sa. Ma is the measurement. The mind. Mind is the measurement of all. All is the measurement of mind. The measurement of mind is all. The one of intuitive vision, named Samadhi, we become the one of intuitive vision who only desires the highest wisdom that removes the attachments of the ego. So when mother comes to us in chapter 13 and says, all right, you made enough noise, what do you want? What are you making all this noise about? And we'll say, Shut, Pavitra, Ananya Bhakti. I want the wisdom which confers upon me 
the capacity to remain in the highest devotion for all time in every circumstance with every perception and not to miss a breath. In translating this work, I hope to put forth an effort that will please my parents, my gurus, the rishis, the gods, and the mother of the universe, and upon its completion to become Lord Shiva. Swami Satyananda Saraswati, Rishikesh, 1981. <laughs> now, this is the introduction to the sixth edition. And that was written in 2001 in the Devi Mandir. <laughs> introduction to the sixth edition. It is more than 27 years since I worked on the original translation. Why is that? 2001? <laughs> I'm not that old. <laughs> it is more than 27 years since I worked on the original translation of the Chandipa. So much has changed in the world since I roamed the forests of India asking all the holy people I met how they could explain these verses. Over these many years, Hinduism has become a global culture. The word yoga has been assimilated into every modern language and people are reciting the Chandipat all across Europe, throughout North and South America, in the Far East, in the Middle East, Australia, New Zealand, Japan, and Malaysia, certainly throughout India and wherever students, students of Oriental cultural and Hindu philosophy congregate. This book really traveled to a lot of places. There were a few areas which needed to be updated from the original translation. Many students complained that I often wrote in Indian English, <coughs> which is no doubt a dialect significantly different from Americanese. And having lived in India so long, it was impossible to rem remember what proper American English was supposed to sound like. Uh, and therefore, this new edition has tried to edit out many of those uncomfortable usages. That is, I wanted to speak. You, there's only two possibilities when you translate. Either you're faithful to the original language, or you're faithful to the target language. Well, my original translation was faithful to the original. And after 27 years of trying to explain Chandi to English-speaking audiences, I decided to make it a little less faithful to the original and a little more faithful to the English edition. Uh, also, the scripture has always been just as applicable to women as to men. Yeah, it's not about boys and girls. However, the grammar followed the cultural traditions that suggest that men performed the tapasya and women provided support, nourishment, and enabled the discipline. Uh, whether or not this may have been true in ancient times, it is no longer applicable to the present circumstances, all you women's livers. So I tried to make everything as neuter gender as possible, saying that whoever, instead of he, or in other ways, I tried to make it applicable to both boys and girls. Whether, uh, okay, both males and females have an equal right and authority to pray to God. <clears throat> this is, without a doubt, the substance of our philosophy. It pertains to everyone. It's not, it is gender neutral. It is, we do not discriminate because of race, because of color, because of creed, because of birth, because of anything. If you can do it, you can do it. If you want to do it, you can try. If you try, you will succeed. And it doesn't matter if you're a boy or a girl or a, or, or a little of each. Uh, every
everyone has the equal right and authority to pray to God. And this has been rectified in this current translation, which now remains neutral in matters of gender, except for the obvious references to the gods and goddesses. I didn't make goddesses boys. I let them stay as girls. Punctuation has been applied in a much more liberal dosage, and it is a delightful discovery, it is a delight to discover people who get paid by the comma. Uh, many of my English professor friends who went through my uh, uh, translation, they, they charged me for each comma that they put. So you can see that it is well punctuated. We hope that the additional ink on the paper will make this edition more, much more readable and discernible, although it is still a translation of a work which precedes Christianity by at least a thousand years or more. But most important is the goddess, the Divine Mother, who has remained with me all these years. She's still here. Her presence in my life is increasingly more vibrant and more tangible. The famous proverb reminds us that love is such a commodity, the more you give it away, the more it will grow. I always remember that Samadhi, pure intuitive vision, as he is called in the story, asked for the boon of eternal devotion to the Divine Mother, along with the wisdom which removes the attachment of egotism and possession. After she granted him that boon, he constantly traveled the world and set up altars to the Divine Mother and put her picture on the altar and put a book there. And he taught people the joy of submerging ourselves into the worship of divinity. These last so many years, we have been doing something similar by circumambulating the globe and translating the methods of worship into many languages. It is our absolute delight that because of these efforts, the Chandipat is being recited by many people in many lands and the pujas are being performed with sincerity, regularity, and a degree of efficiency which will make every devotee proud. After all, that is the meaning of a sadhu. I want to thank Nanda, Nandamad, Danyavad, whose knowledge of English is exemplary, and Vitala Nanda, whose knowledge of computers is exact, and Srima and the entire Devi Mandir family, who have worked so hard to point me in the right direction, in spite of myself, and who offer support. I only pray that all of these efforts bring about a world filled with devotees who respect each other because of their love for God. And that was Swami Satyananda Saraswati Devi Mandir, Napa, California, 2001. And that was this last edition. That was the last time we revised Chan. And this time we did Ganga <laughs> So great. <laughs> Om Sam Saraswati Namaha, and that's, uh, that takes care of our bhumika, that takes care of our introduction and prefaces, and we are ready to begin the worship. Let's see if there are any questions. We have a question from Sadatmananda in Washington. Namaste Sadatmananda. Pranam, dearest Swamiji. You mentioned that Samadhi asked for intuitive vision. After completing the, uh, the Chandi Sahasra Yagya, the king asked for his kingdom back. Can you explain what it, means, what it means by that and why he could possibly ask for anything other than the goddess after completing such austerities? Yes. Sadatmananda, the king's name was Good Thoughts. And he was the king of good thoughts. And he never let a bad thought into his kingdom. Now, when he said, I want my kingdom back, he said, I want to become the king of good thoughts again and never to allow a bad thought to come into my kingdom. And the goddess said, Tatasta, you will remain the king of good thoughts and you will never have a bad thought. And Samadhi, his name was Samadhi. 
pure intuitive vision. He said, I just want the wisdom to remain who I am. <laughs> I am pure intuitive vision. Give me the wisdom to remain full of devotion all the time so I can maintain pure intuitive vision. Please. We have a question from Chandra in Antup, Turkey. Antup, Turkey, namaste. Chandana, please take blessings and surround yourself with light. We are giving you a kavach, a suit of armor, so that no weak, bad vibration can possibly come into your kingdom. Vernon, beloved Swamiji, can you talk about the value of, the value of continuing sadhana under suboptimal conditions? Absolutely. We don't want to just meditate when we're alone under a tree in the Himalayas. You will enjoy that privilege from time to time, but there are other times where you will be recorded, required to act and interact with other people in other places, in circumstances and environments that you cannot control. I had wandered in the Himalayas for three years with my guru. And we did everyday chandi. And then we got on a train. And after a couple of days of rocking and rolling, we got down first thing in the morning at Haura Station in Calcutta. And we got to the most crowded, most noisy, most obnoxious place on the railway platform. And my guru said, it's morning, let's chant the chandi. <laughs> so we sat down uh, right by the gate where people were going out. And the coolies were spitting and people were shouting and people were shoving and people were yelling and all kinds of activities were going on. I said, Guruji, are you out of your mind? <laughs> We've just come from the Himalayas for three years. All we did was enjoy the bliss and solitude of nature and chanted the chandi in the most optimum circumstances and now here we are in this railway station at the platform with everybody making noise and in a hurry and uh, disrespecting us we're in their way what why he said to me anyone can meditate in the optimum environment now a sadhu becomes so efficient that he or she has practiced to make every environment optimum. You can become a one with the optimal environment just because you sit down there. You see when Srima goes to San Francisco, people just gravitate towards her. She goes there with bags of prasad and full of blessings and everyone comes and says, I love your cloth. I love the colors that you're wearing. She carries herself as a great ascetic. She carries the optimal environment with her. If you practice only in the optimum environment, you will become a servant of circumstances. <laughs> you will be required, you, to, you will become habituated to responding to when you're not in the optimal environment. So you want to practice your practices in every environment because the whole world is yours. And that's why we will not always seek the optimal environment, but wherever we are at the time of sadhana, that's the time to sit down and do your practice. We have a question from both Dan and Lori. They have the same question. Namaste, Dan and Lori, with the same question. Where in Rishikesh did you perform the Sahasra Chandi Yagya? In Mayakund. Uh, it's uh, at People Gut in Mayakund. Uh, you go there and you ask anyone. <laughs> I think they still know me. 
We have a question from Sharanya in Walnut Creek. Namaste, Sharanya. Pranam, on the quote that you have on the first page, what does it mean to make the Divine Mother stop dancing? How does one make that happen? When, she's, when we are so still inside that we are not perceiving the changes, we are only perceiving the equanimity, the equilibrium, we become liberated in that perception and no longer does she dance, she just stops. When we are so full of devotion that we can't think of any second thought, there's no duality, then all movement ceases. We have a question from Koshiki in Canada. Namaste Koshiki Ma! In what form should we visualize and worship Chandi? You can start with the cover. <laughs> and if you don't like the cover, then put a picture of Shrima there. I'll pray for cover. <laughs> <laughs> I'll pray for Shrima. <laughs> yes, please. So follow-up question to when you said when it comes to be the time to sadhana, to do sadhana to make it the optimal place. Yes. What if there's people around, and especially in this country, and they're not used to seeing this type of thing? If your sadhana will cause a disruption to other people, then do it silently. You can close your eyes. Nobody has to know that you're singing the chandipat. They can just say, wow, she looks like she's meditating. But inside, you know you're actually doing puja. Inside, nobody has to know what's going on inside. You know that. They can only see the outside. They said, that lady's not chanting chandi. She's not doing puja. She's meditating. That's cool. <laughs> That's no disturbance. So you don't have to do it as loudly as some of us brash uh, braggarts do with a loud mouth. We have a question from Sadhana Shakti in Seattle. Namaste, Sadhana. Pranam, if there is resistance when chanting the chandi, is this simply the asuras running from the light of purification? Yes! <laughs> in fact, in chapters 2 and 3, when they hear the sound of her bell, they grab their ears and say, Stop! Stop that noise! I can't stand to listen to the sound of purity! I can't stand to hear all those mantras being chanted! Stop all that chanting! But we, we will defeat them with the force of our sankalpa sadhana. We say, ah, you guys can get up and run away if you want, but I'm not moving my knees. I can't control my mind, but I can promise I'm not going to move my knees. And that's what your asan will do for you. Your asan will say, well, how far can you go? <laughs> I can't move my knees. Yes, please. We have a question from Ramya in Bangalore. Namaste, Ramya! How is it possible to feel Mother's presence all the time within us, in each and every action, thought, and word? That only comes from grace. Rami, Mami, that's only Srima's grace when she gives you that boon. But remember the grace is Kripa, and Kri means do, and Pa means Pao. Get! So what you do is what you get, and that's the grace. She's going to give you what you get. What you, she will give you the fruit of your karma. You will realize the fruit of your karma. And if you choose to ask for the karma, to cultivate the karma, the relationship where you remember her all the time, she can give you that blessing too, I believe. Yes, please. Why do we praise the night of duality? Because she's going to free us and let us go. <laughs> Thank you. You expose the light. You bring your sister the dawn. And the dawn is the advent of the, uh, the rise of the sun. And now comes the light of wisdom and the warmth of devotion. Thank you for departing. <laughs> That was the nicest thing anyone ever did for me, was to, get, to, to take a hike. 
Get out of my life, night of duality. I don't need any more duality. I don't need any more darkness of ignorance. I don't need the wolves or the thieves that are stealing from me. Come, prod, lo, mo. I don't need all those repoos. I don't need all those limitations. Please. Thank you. I bow to you. You were with me for so long. You were a part of my life, a part of my being. I really thought you were necessary. You were intrinsic to my identity, to ego I. You were the one. Thank you. Now, thanks for going. Yes, please. We have a question from Moshimi in Boulder. Namaste, Moshimi Ma. Pranam. If I skip the Chandipat for more than a day, my Chandipat becomes difficult and more exhausting. Is that because the Asuras within me grow stronger during that skip and my battle to defeat them becomes harder? How to control my Asuras within me more efficiently if circumstances force me to skip chanting the Chandi? You just have to work harder the next time, Mushami. There is no way if you can't do the sadhana daily. I mean, you, you, you brush your teeth daily, you, you put soap on your body daily, because if you don't do it daily, it accumulates. The gunk and the scum and the funk accumulates inside and out. So it's necessary for us, to the extent of our capacity to be regular in our discipline, so that we don't forget the mantras. It says in the Kila Kastav, if you don't chant this every day, if you don't do this puja regularly, it's going to leave you. And when it leaves you, then the asuras get stronger, the devas get weaker, the light becomes softer, and the voices chanting inside become louder. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I didn't make the rules. So, if you can't do it in the morning, do it in the night. If you can't do it in the night, do it in the midnight. If you can't do it at midnight, do it in the first thing in the morning. Do it at 3 o'clock, do it at 2 o'clock, do it whenever you get up. But do it. If you can't do it all, do a portion. If you can't do a portion, do one chapter. Do it with willpower. Do it with willpower. I will do it. Please. We have a question from Elise. Namaste, Elise. Why does the Divine, <clears throat> why does the divine Mother uh, in the Chandi go to the Himalayas and then leaves? And uh, there, it seems that there are more than two battles. It seems like the battle is over and then there is another battle. Is this symbolic? Uh, no, it is history. The history of me. At least I think it's a history of all of us. We, we win a, bat a victory and we win a battle. And then there's another one. <laughs> and we fight that one valiantly, and we win that one too. And then there's another one. <laughs> and it doesn't stop. The Chandi is not necessarily a chronology. Of you're going to win the battle in the first chapter, and you're going to win the battle in the second episode, and you're going to win the battle in the third episode. No. They're all going on all the time. And they don't stop. If you take a breath without saying the name of God, you just got beaten by an Ashura. <laughs> Every time you take a breath without thinking the name of God, you just got wounded by another Ashura. <laughs> And it goes on, as it says in the text, with the regularity of a water wheel, <laughs> meaning it doesn't stop. It's ananya, chirastai, byakulata. It's going, ongoing, infinite, beyond conception. It just keeps going. We have a question from uh, Joseph in Illinois. Namaste, Joseph. You once said that one recitation of the Chandi is equal to one year of puja, but we should do puja first. How do we do Chandi puja? 
Well, start out small with the Durga Puja, beginners, and then move to the Intermediate Puja, which contains a, a, an Intermediate Durga Pujas, and then move to the Advanced Puja, which is the Cosmic Puja, and then do the Chandipat. So, yeah, Bill, even these uh, introductory mantras consist of a small puja. You're offering uh, dipam, dupam, aratrikam, pushpam, patram, pushpam, toyam, palam, yomebatya, prakachati. You can offer at least four articles. With pure devotion. With pure devotion, that's a puja. But, yeah, I, we're talking about a bigger, 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 bigger puja. So you want to do puja to the extent of your capacity and then do the chandipan, and then do the puja again and again to the extent of your capacity. Or do the home, which contains a puja. <laughs> we have a question from Julia. Namaste, Julia Ma. Did you find as you practiced this in the uh, temples in India that people were helped? Although we would like to, uh, those around us to also do this amazing practice, if we are the only ones who do it, can we help those who are in our circle of acquaintances and our loved ones? Absolutely! Julia, you put out a vibration that is so strong that everybody can't help but being uh, to assimilate that vibration. And they feel that bhavana, and they, feel, they take that as their karma. And you present an example of somebody who's focused, and somebody who's diligent, and somebody who has got the stick to itiveness. I don't know if there's such a word. There probably is. The perseverance to go ahead and do the regularity, the discipline, the, the, the attitude of gratitude that allows you to sit in worship and prayer every day, whether you need it or not. You sit in prayer every day with the regularity of a water wheel and you create this vibration which invites the entire world to rejoice with you. Certainly, everyone is benefited by the recitation of the Chande. Om Sam Sarasvati Namaha. Namaste. Jai.